session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. But I do ask if you call in tonight, I have a special guest, neurologist, Dr. Jonathan Morabian. So if you do call in, please have all your questions directed towards him. Before I bring him on the air, let me introduce you to you all. He is a neurologist who did his residency in neurology at Dartmouth and a fellowship at Yale in neurocritical care and emergency neurology. He is an assistant professor of neurology and neurological surgery at USC, and he works as an emergency and stroke neurologist where he primarily sees patients in the hospital. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Morabian, thank you for joining me tonight. Oh, and I should also mention, I know Dr. Jonathan Morabian since the eighth grade. Uh, when my family moved cities and he was one of the first friends I'd made and we reconnected recently and uh, he was one of the friends that actually helped me transition. I don't know if I've ever really told that to him, but he helped me transition to being in a new school and new city and um, I hadn't seen him for many years, but we just recently reconnected and seen the amazing work he's been doing. So I'm very happy to have an old friend on the show, Dr. Jonathan Morabian. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for coming on the air. As I mentioned, you are uh, Assistant Professor of Neurology and Neurological Surgery at USC, and you work uh, in the emergency rooms or emergency situations, critical situations. So maybe you can tell us a bit about um, what you do or what types of patients you see. Yes, definitely. So I primarily work in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like other neurologists, see patients in the clinic setting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the patients that I see have uh, neurological emergencies and they have really catastrophic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. Uh, This can vary anywhere from brain bleeds. Uh, I see a lot of patients with traumatic brain injury and that type of traumatic brain injury can vary anywhere from mild to severe. Um, I see a lot of patients with strokes and that's primarily Uh, a lot of the patients that I see. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little about what a stroke is today. Yeah, we'll talk about those uh, things. And of course, everything we're talking about sounds very serious, but I'm sure like any type of issue, there's a huge range of different degrees and prognosis and different things that we're going to get into that I think will be helpful for the listeners to know. Why don't we just start off with even you said like types of, you just said TBI, traumatic brain injury. What does a, what is a brain injury? What does that even mean? Right. So there are a couple of kinds or ways to describe brain injury. One way to describe brain injury is um, based on the primary injury that can mm-hmm. happen. And like I mentioned, it can be traumatic, for example, like an accident or a gunshot to the head or, uh, you know, just falling off of your skateboard, mm-hmm. um, a ball hitting your head on the playground, right? Th- that can be a type of primary injury or it can be from a stroke or a brain bleed, mm-hmm. or it can sometimes even be from um, other any other kind of insult, for example, metabolic abnormalities. And that's the primary type of injury mm-hmm. that occurs. Mm-hmm. That injury that occurs primarily, there's not a whole lot that you can do about it. You can't go back in time and take away the accident. Mm-hmm. You can't go back in time and reverse the stroke. Right. But uh, there are things that you can do to prevent secondary injury. Right. So you can't prevent 
the damage that's done from that primary injury, the neurons that die or the damage that happens initially, neurons can't regrow or, well, I guess there's some, in some ways they can, but if large brain regions are killed or uh, damaged, you can't bring that back. But like you said, what you're really trying to do is minimize what you call secondary injury, what happens after that. That's right. Number one, we hope to prevent neurons from dying. Mm -hmm. And there are some interventions that we can mm. do very immediately from preventing neurons from dying. Mm -hmm. But as there is more stress on the brain, um, just like anywhere in your body, if you injure that part of the body today, for example, your elbow or your knee, it's going to start swelling in the days and sometimes it's going to start swelling maybe in the minutes, mm -hmm. days, and sometimes even weeks to come. The problem is that the brain is in an enclosed space. Right. It's in the skull. If your elbow swells, it can swell out into the world. Mm -hmm. It can swell out into your surrounding environment. But if the brain swells, there's nowhere for it to swell other than on itself. Mm. And that's one of the reasons that there is secondary injury. Mm -hmm. And really, my job focuses on identifying the types of secondary injury that can occur after the primary insult mm -hmm. and really trying to treat that with various interventions. Interesting. So just like other parts of the body, um, the, br the body responds the same way to the brain getting injured, just like it would your elbow or knee, and that involves swelling, which can be obviously damaging when you don't have space because then that builds up things like pressure and other, you know, so what are the, what kind of damage happens there? Is it vessels bursting right. or what kind of things happen? So, so absolutely. Actually swelling uh, itself is a double-edged sword mm -hmm. in that it's your body reacting to try to come up and clean up the damage that's happening. Mm -hmm. Your immune cells go to that area. They want to uh, clean up all the cells that are dead and, and make things better. But it's a double-edged sword in that while it's trying to do good, it can also cause further injury. So some of that may happen because uh, the pressure on the brain can just push the very delicate neurons further and further until they can tear further. Sometimes it can happen because of allowing more bleeding in the brain. And there are a lot of uh, aspects that we can't even see. Mm. It, there's a lot of, um, micro, on a very microscopic level, there can be other types of uh, uh, causes that cause more injury mm -hmm. to the brain that we can't even quantify. Wow. And, and that's why, as you said, your role is primarily actually, well, it's funny to say primarily, but to come in in that secondary injury part to prevent, the damage has already been done from the primary injury. You're trying to prevent as much damage that happens after that. And even actually, I know a colleague and friend of yours who's also a friend of mine, uh, neurosurgeon Dr. Parham Yashar, you were mentioning how you've actually you work with him. And, and together, neurologists and neurosurgeons collaborate in a way to help prevent secondary injury or minimize the damage Absolutely. done. So can you talk maybe a bit about that? What kind of interventions are available or what do you guys, what can you do? Right. So uh, for example, if someone comes in with a stroke right. of the brain. Mm -hmm. If it's a very large stroke, there are, uh, well, we're going to talk about the immediate interventions that we can mm -hmm. uh, uh, do for a stroke when they come to the emergency department. But after a few days, when they're in the ICU, if it's a large stroke, uh, that stroke bed, it continues to swell. Mm -hmm. And like I mentioned, that swelling can push other parts of the brain. Now, there are medications that we can give to pull out liquid and fluids from that brain tissue. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that medications are enough to prevent the patient from getting worse. Mm. Um, so th there's a lot of management in giving those different types of medications, making sure the chemistries of the body are the way they need to be. So we support mm -hmm. their body 
in order to prevent this injury. There comes a point where there's just no more room and there's no more room that we can make with medications in the brain mm -hmm. to prevent the patient from slipping into a coma and having yet more injury. And our colleagues, our neurosurgeons, uh, they can come and uh, make more space by taking off the bone mm -hmm. and creating a situation like your elbow, allowing the brain to swell out into the world mm -hmm. rather than swelling on itself. Wow. So that's why they'll do those things where they kind of drill a hole in the skull, take off a piece so that now there's space for the brain to kind of swell or expand without causing more damage. Is that right? That's absolutely. Okay. So they'll, they'll take off the bone and they'll sew the skin back. Wow. So they'll sit in the ICU for a number of days and sometimes mm. even weeks with no bone on that part of their head. Oh, interesting. So they put the skin back so that the brain is not exposed. Correct. But there's no bone, so it's more flexible. Correct. Can... Oh, very interesting. And even these patients, when it's time for them to recover and they wake up some, yeah. they have to leave the bed or anything that they do, they have to do with a helmet. Because mm. there's no bone there. Interesting. Well, to keep everything kind of in place. Right. Or yeah. not to hurt it. Hurt it. Or okay. a fall or other. Right. Oh, because it's so exposed. Like you can't yeah. just risk because anything happens. It's just, yeah. If you touch the skin, you could feel the brain under it. Right. Which, again, uh, tells us why the value of the skull in general, of course, is that it protects this very valuable organ. But then in these moments when there's brain injury, the skull kind of, like you said, double-edged sword, it kind of can work against us because it doesn't allow space for the body to do what it normally does when there is an injury. That's right. Um, you know, you mentioned stroke, and I, I, I know stroke is one of those things we hear a lot. People, I've heard some people say, oh, a stroke is like a heart attack, but of the brain, but I'm sure it's not that simple. But so can you tell us what uh, a stroke is? Yes. So uh, that, that's something that I deal with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are two kinds of strokes. There are one kind of stroke, which is a bleeding stroke. So the blood vessel in the brain ruptures, mm. Okay. That is about 20% of the strokes that we see. There's another type of stroke. It's called an ischemic stroke, which is where most usually there's a blood clot. Mm -hmm. It can come from various parts of the body that stops the blood flow to the brain. It's like a clogging in the plumbing. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's some kind of blood clot. Like you said, it can feel from any part of the body goes to the brain, and now that creates like an occlusion, a blockage from circulation, so blood can't get to certain cells in the brain is that essentially what the damage what causes the damage that's exactly what happens okay. so if there's a blockage in the plumbing uh every part of the brain controls a different part of the body mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so whatever part of the brain doesn't get the blood that it needs those are the signs and symptoms that you have mm -hmm. okay right for example the left side of the brain most usually for for people controls language uh, both speaking and understanding. Mm -hmm. The left side of the brain controls movement of the right side of your body, okay, moving your arms, legs, even mouth and throat muscles, mm -hmm. as well as sensation, so feeling with the right side of your body. So if someone has a stroke that affects the left side of the brain, then you can have symptoms referring to the right side of the body, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, so what kind of, so it's like, it's like things like muscle weakness or losing control, what kind of things might they experience on the opposite side of the body that the brain damage is happening on? Right, so th there's actually an acronym. Um, uh -huh. There's something called FAST, okay? And this is for, I think this is probably one of the most important things for uh, your listeners to take home, sure. how to recognize yeah. a stroke. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I say this is because there are things that can be done immediately in the first few hours that can really prevent from more and more brain cells dying. Mm -hmm. And if you're able to recognize a stroke quickly and call 911, 
and you get to the hospital, there are things that can be done. Mm -hmm. So time is very, very critical. Very critical, absolutely. And I would never err on the side of caution. You know, I, I hear stories all the time. Oh, yeah, dad wasn't feeling well. His arm stopped working. So he thought he would go to sleep and yeah. take a nap and maybe things would be better. Mm-hmm. This is not a circumstance where you want to take a nap. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not something that you want to wait to, to the next day mm-hmm. because time is very precious here. Right, right. Okay. So, so yeah, you said FAST. So um, can you maybe go through that acronym, yeah. each one, and what that means? Yeah. So the F, FAST, is face. Mm-hmm. If you see someone that has facial asymmetry, so if one side of the face is droopy, mm-hmm. that's an alarming sign. Okay? Right. And out of their control, like it just droops. The muscle is just like yep, kind it, of, yeah. it just falls to down. Mm-hmm. So you'll see that they're, when they're talking or smiling, that one side of the face is not activating like the other side. Mm-hmm. And if you want to accentuate that, you ask the person to smile. Mm-hmm. And if you ask them to smile, then you'll see that you can see the teeth on one side, but not the teeth on the other. Mm-hmm. So you know that there's... It's not equal on one right, side. Right, got it. Okay. okay, so that's the F, okay? The F, the face muscles. And then A is for arm. So all you have someone do is have them raise their arms and put it up in front of them like Superman. Mm-hmm. And if one arm slowly drifts down or falls, or they can't even lift one arm, then that's mm. the arm weakness that we worry about. Uh-huh, right. Okay, so that's the, the A part. So arm weakness, right? Yes. And then S is speech. There are several aspects to speech. Mm -hmm. There's both articulating the words that you want to say. So being able to to speak. Produce the sounds. Produce the sounds. Mm -hmm. And if the muscles of the mouth are weak, then those sounds are going to be slurred. Mm -hmm. So it's going to sound like someone has marbles in their mouth. Mm -hmm. Or it's going to sound like someone's drunk. Right? We call that slurred speech. Mm -hmm. Then there's another aspect to speech. Okay? Or language. Is... um, is both understanding language Mm -hmm. and expressing the words that you want to say. So if you have an issue with language, then you may not be able to understand what people are telling you. Mm -hmm. You can can hear them talk, and you may even be able to talk, but you may not understand anything they're telling you. Right. So processing and comprehension become an issue. Yeah. And then the next part to speech is producing speech. Mm -hmm. So what people usually have is what they call word-finding problems. Mm-hmm. They know what they want to say in their head, but they just can't find the word. Mm-hmm. Or do they do word salads, like where they kind of say random words, or no, it's just they have a hard time finding words? So actually, word salad is a word that we commonly use. That has more to do with understanding speech. Yeah. So they'll just keep saying words, but in a nonsensical way. Right. Because you don't understand the concept of speech and you can't organize your words. Right. That's why a word salad comes out. Interesting, yeah. Th- this one is more of a production. You yeah. You know the word that you want, and you see these people are very Tip of the tongue kind of a thing, right. It, it feels like it's on the tip of their tongue where they just can't think of a word that they, it's a pretty, a word they generally can not have a hard time with. So it can vary in, in severity and degree. Sure. Sometimes it's, uh, if the stroke is more severe, they'll have difficulty with even the most basic words. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they cannot produce any speech at all whatsoever. Sometimes if the stroke is small, they may have difficulty with what we call uh, lower frequency words, words that you may not use so mm-hmm, often, mm-hmm. but they have difficulty with those words. Right. They can say more common words. Mm-hmm. Right. So like anything, there's obviously going to be a range of the, sim- the symptoms and also how the severity of the symptoms and what they're experiencing. But that FAST acronym, face, arm, speech, time, and then the T is for time, yep. um, which you kind of alluded to, but again, that it's so critical that when you see those signs to respond immediately and by responding immediately you mean call 911 right call 911 i would not hesitate 
yeah, don't try to go to the emergency room or handle it yourself. You want mm. immediate intervention as quick as possible. Don't pass go. Do not collect 200. <laughs> Call 911. Okay. So we're actually at our first commercial break. Uh, maybe after break, we can talk a bit maybe about risk factors that people might wonder who um, is at risk for a stroke and also more information about that in prognosis, what happens after a stroke, what people and families can expect. And also something that I'm very interested to have you talk about tonight is making end of life decisions or the, the decisions that families have to make after their uh, loved ones have gone through some kind of traumatic brain injury or some kind of uh, stroke or, or dealing with these various issues that Dr. Jonathan Moravian has to deal with all the time because I think he has some valuable information to share with you about that. Again, my guest tonight, neurologist Dr. Jonathan Moravian. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined tonight by neurologist Dr. Jonathan Morabian. Uh, Dr. Morabian, before the break, you were talking about strokes and uh, sharing that FAST acronym, which is so important for people to remember face, arm, speech, and then time. Make sure you respond as quickly as you can when you see those call 911. Um, what are some risk factors? Maybe people want to know who is at risk uh, for having a stroke, just to be aware of those risk factors. Right. So, um, to, to pick up on the risk factors, it's, it's really just maintaining a healthy lifestyle mm -hmm. and going to your doctor periodically to get everything checked out. Okay, mm -hmm. And these things come up in your usual and routine workup that your primary care doctor does. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, the things that they look for and are risk factors for strokes, uh, ischemic strokes as well as bleeding strokes, um, are high blood pressure. So that's why it's always great, especially if your age is advancing, to check your blood pressure regularly both at mm -hmm. home, so that's something you can report to your doctor mm -hmm. and take in a piece of paper with you, and have your blood pressure checked regularly when you go to your doctor. And it's especially important if your doctor asks you to take a medication to control your blood pressure that you take the medication. Right? Mm -hmm. So blood pressure is one very common one, high cholesterol. That's also contributing to um, possibility of having a stroke. As the cholesterol builds up, just like it can build up in your heart and you can have a heart attack, the cholesterol can build up in the arteries of the neck as well as the brain. Mm. And those can also cause you to have a stroke. Right. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, another one is diabetes. So uh, blood, high blood sugar and sustained high blood sugar. And that can also um, cause you to have a stroke. How, how does diabetes lead to stroke? Is it damaging the arteries or the veins like is it something related to that yeah so it can damage the arteries because when there's extended periods of high blood sugar mm -hmm. those can be directly damaging to the arteries mm. and a lot of times it's these very small arteries in the brain that are affected by diabetes i see and that these small arteries just from years of high sugar and insults to the small arteries they just one day can close off mm. on its own so it's maybe not necessarily a clot that goes to that small artery but it can close off. Mm. You see the same process happens with diabetes with in the eye mm -hmm. when the blood vessels in the eye get damaged. You can see the same process in the hands and feet that cause numbness in diabetes right. because those nerves also need blood and nutrients. Mm -hmm. And from long-standing high sugars, it can damage those nerves and arteries. And then you have numbness. Same thing can happen to the kidneys. Mm -hmm. So it's diabetes doesn't just cause strokes. It can cause 
damage to the eyes, numbness in your hands and feet, damage to the kidneys can lead to heart attacks. It can lead to many different uh, diseases. Got it. Got it. Um, so you mentioned uh, diabetes. Anything else? Uh, any other risk factors? So smoking uh -huh. is a big contributing risk factor. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some risk factors that we can't control, mm -hmm. you know, like age, uh, gender. Uh, there are other, you know, there are... As far as gender goes, who's more likely to... Female, slightly more likely. Okay. Um, but there are other things that you can't... Uh, race, there are certain races that mm -hmm. more predominant. So there's things that you can't... But the ones that I mentioned, those are specifically controllable risk factors mm -hmm. that if you go to your doctor, get your... Uh, get your regular checkups and take the medications that you're supposed to mm -hmm. and then make sure that the medications are working, yeah. then it should minimize your risk of having a stroke. Right. As you mentioned, um, these risk factors, the ones that are controllable, are basically the things we say for almost anything, right? I mean, most of these, I'm sure, the same for a heart attack, right? Blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, those are all going to be things that increase your risk for a heart attack. So these things are just good for overall well-being, but also reduce your likelihood of having a stroke it reminds you of signs people will talk about even for mental health what's good for you physically and it's a lot of these same things the things you eat are going to be similar it's just having a healthy lifestyle as you said it's not something different and that's actually kind of good you can just do one healthy lifestyle and it's going to help you in preventing or reducing the likelihood of a lot of different uh, medical conditions but really it's not some magic science it's like pretty much the same thing that we all know low blood pressure cholesterol Diabetes, smoking is a risk factor. So it's, as you said, a healthy lifestyle is going to reduce the risk of stroke. Right. No, absolutely. And it's because a lot of these processes in the body, they run on similar circuits. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So it's, it is a gunshot approach. Right. Um, it's really having a healthy lifestyle, mm -hmm. exercising, and regularly getting your checkups and making sure that you take your medications mm -hmm. to make sure that all these things are, are okay. Yeah. It'll prevent heart attacks, prevent strokes. It can prevent a lot of complications. Right. And um, I know people always wonder about this with different medical conditions or even mental conditions. And I would assume there is some level of genetic uh, component related to this because maybe, let's say, the health of arteries or things like that could be something that's passed genetically. Is there any research on that? The genetic, if you're someone in your family had a stroke, are you more likely to have a stroke or is it not that related? No, so there's definitely a link in the genetics of having a stroke, mm -hmm. uh, especially with younger people mm -hmm. uh, because there are specific kinds of strokes that are due to reasons, not the ones that I mentioned that you can control, right. but there are genetic risk factors, especially if someone in your family was younger when they had a stroke, mm -hmm. then you may be predisposed to the same condition that caused them to have a stroke. So right. there's a, But even for cholesterol... Mm -hmm. Different people metabolize cholesterol differently in their body. Right. And everyone is different. So some people can have accelerated atherosclerosis or their cholesterol can take more of an effect on their body than the next person. Mm -hmm. So you can get that from your family as well in the way you right. metabolize the different cholesterols in your body. Mm -hmm. And I know you alluded to this a bit before about interventions and things, but just so people get an idea. So they're with their family member and they see these you know, signs and they call 911 and they find out um, their family member indeed has had a stroke. What happens next at the hospital? What's generally going to happen? Going right. Forward? So uh, it, it's like I said, it's very important to call 911 as soon mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. And even I would say before they get to the hospital, the alarms are going off. When the paramedics come in Los Angeles, they, they do an evaluation on the site mm -hmm. and they can pick up signs of stroke. 
And they call the hospital and tell them to get everything in place. Mm. They're expecting your arrival for the stroke because everyone in the health community, the emergency community, is aware that things can be done immediately. Mm -hmm. So even before you get to the hospital, people are, are, are waiting for you to come. Mm. And the reason is because there are certain things that we can do in a certain time frame. Okay? Mm -hmm. As soon as you get to the emergency department and they see that you're medically stable and breathing okay, they have you get a CAT scan to see is it a bleeding kind of stroke or not. And then the doctors do a quick evaluation to see what kinds of symptoms and if your symptoms are compatible with the stroke. Because mm -hmm. not all the time they are. Right. Right? Someone can have, for example, a urinary infection and be confused. Mm. And I see this often with older people. They can have a urinary infection, uh, infection be confused, mm -hmm. and they're not speaking right. Mm. So it takes a, a, pro, a medical provider to pick up on these things. Right. But if your signs and symptoms are compatible with a stroke and there's a clog or blockage in the artery, there's a clot-busting medication that can be given within a specific time frame. Mm. Okay? Usually that time frame is within four, four and a half hours. Okay? Sometimes it's within three hours depending on the case. Mm -hmm. But again patient needs to get there within that specific time frame. Mm -hmm. And the way that time frame works is we go by the last known well time. And that's one question that I always ask family is when did you see your family last well? Because mm -hmm. sometimes your family member may be sitting in front of you when the stroke starts, mm -hmm. but sometimes they're not. Right. Oftentimes they're not. They're doing their own thing. You're doing your own thing. Mm -hmm. And you come into the room later and you find them unwell. So it's the very important time for us is last known well time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's important. That's right. one. So that gives you an idea of how, an, an estimate of maybe how long it's been since the stroke started. Of course, right. you won't know for sure for all the factors you just mentioned. So right. you do the blood clot um, busting medication in right. a lot of the cases. And then, you know, what, what should the family expect next, you know, and what's going to happen next? So in specific cases, again, if... Uh, we can give the blood clot medication, we do. Mm -hmm. And then we can also see if there is a blood clot that can be retrieved. Mm. So if there's a blockage, again, in the plumbing, then we get a scan and look at all the arteries in the brain. And if we see an abruption or a clot in the, in the artery, then the interventionalist or the person that pulls out these blood clots can go in with a wire through the groin, go all wow. the way up to the brain, and pull out that blood clot. That's amazing. Wow. So they go in through the groin and they guide it all the way up to the brain and they pull out these blood clots that are in the brain. That's absolutely that's, right. sounds amazing. And that's something that we were talking about, Dr. Param Yashar, that's the kind of interventions they do? or That's exactly the type of intervention. That sounds incredible. So we work well, hand in hand. Yeah. You know, I'll go in, I'll see the patient, we give the blood clot medications. Sometimes we can even see the patient on video if we have to mm -hmm. because it's very time sensitive right. to do these things as soon as possible then the interventionalist will come in and attempt to take it out. And you'd be surprised. People can go from a very, very disabled state mm -hmm. to completely normal after the blood clot is no longer there. Wow. That, that is amazing. And the interventions that you guys do are, are really incredible. Um, and yes, I hope people will take advantage of them and as quickly as possible, make sure they get themselves there. Uh, and yeah, go ahead. Again, um, it's all about timing. Right. So the blood clot busting medication can only be given within a certain time. Mm -hmm. The blood clot can be pulled out within a certain amount of time. And the whole idea is if the brain is already damaged or mm. it's too damaged, there may, no, there may not be any benefit 
of giving these medications or undergoing these interventions. In fact, there may be more harm because then you may be opening up a blood vessel to an area where it's already all dead brain, mm -hmm. and then that area can bleed. And that's something you don't want and as then well. It can damage, near, it can damage even areas, more right. areas. Interesting. So it's yeah. all about the timing and getting there quickly to un undergo these interventions as soon right. as possible. And of course, uh, you know, what makes it even more critical is, you know, if you hurt, I don't know if I hurt my quadricep muscle and more of it is getting damaged, it's like not that big of a deal. But when we're talking about the brain and then more of the brain gets damaged, now we're losing different types of functions, different types of abilities. Um, and even, of course, leading to things like brain death. So it's, of course, how critical the brain is at the time becomes even more important because any more damage means huge losses in the person's well-being and, and future outlook in life. So, of course, you have to intervene as quickly as possible because of how critical the brain is. Um, and, you know, we don't want, obviously, to damage any more parts than, than we have to. Which brings me to the next idea, which we'll probably just start before the break and talk some more after the break of and this is another one of those, I'm sure there's a huge range. What do we expect as far as prognosis when someone has a stroke? What what should the family and even maybe the, the patient themselves expect? Right. So again, it comes back to how much of the brain right. is damaged. Mm -hmm. And I will say that if you're looking at a, a, scan, a brain scan of one person and looking at the brain scan of another person, even if they may have on that scan the same amount of damage, they may have different types of functions left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So not everyone is different. It's very uh, personalized right. in terms of the amount of recovery. Um, but I will say the important thing is to get the, the clot out and get and preserve the brain that's not dead. Mm -hmm. Because brain that's dead will no longer grow back. Mm -hmm. It's not like your skin. If you cut your skin, it'll grow. Even if you damage some other organs, like your mm -hmm. liver, it can, it can to some degree regenerate and... and uh, it may have the ability, but the brain doesn't do that. Right. What can happen is the brain that's dead is dead, but then the areas that are surrounding the dead brain, mm -hmm. they may be able to come and pick up the slack mm -hmm. and give you some extra help to regain that function. And recovery can be anywhere from complete recovery mm -hmm. where you have no more symptoms until it, it can be where you may have severe amount of deficit. And in fact, stroke is one of the leading it is the leading cause of disability in the united states really from wow. a medical uh, uh -huh. problem wow i did not know that uh that's very interesting yet yeah, uh, what you're talking about before about the brain i know th there's a lot of research on neuroplasticity now that uh different parts of the brain can take over or at least try to compensate for other parts but obviously there's limits to that too so it's not that just you can lose any part of the brain and another part can just swoop in and take over but at times there can be brain damage where one area is damaged, but some other part of the brain might recover some of those. And that's why I think, like you said, it's so idiosyncratic. It's so case to case how someone is going to recover. And that's why, you know, we're at another commercial break. I think after break, we can talk a bit about the types of conversa conversations you have with families and then the types of decisions and conversations families need to have to deal with these very serious and difficult situations to be in. But I think you can maybe give some guidance and wisdom to the listeners who hopefully won't, but of course, inevitably, death is something we all have to deal with and we have to be ready to face for ourselves and our family members. And we need to not avoid those conversations and have them. So after the break, we'll get into that a little bit. Again, my guest tonight, neurologist Dr. Jonathan Morabian. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. So now you told us about 
Welcome back. Uh, again, my guest tonight, Dr. Jonathan Moravian. Um, Dr. Moravian, before the break, you were talking a lot about strokes and, uh, again, recommending that if you've seen signs and symptoms, immediately call 911. And when they get there and you start to talk about some of the interventions, what can the family expect to happen as far as prognosis and what's even here from the doctor? And then definitely want to get into those conversations that they need to have um, that you regularly have with family. So maybe start with the, the prognosis or what to expect there. Sure. So the, the, the best case scenario mm-hmm. is that the family members get better. Right. The sooner, the better is, is always great. And uh, we always hope for the best recovery. Sure. Right? But that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, hard for us to say, especially in the earlier days, how someone will recover. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, because as I mentioned, there can be more swelling going on in the brain. And that swelling, sometimes the patients, they get worse before they get better, especially in the first several days and weeks. Mm. So it's hard in the beginning for the doctors to give a great sense of the amount of recovery or how much recovery Mm. someone has from a larger injury to the brain. So in essence, family members should expect to get a vague prognosis very initially, unless it's really clear that it's really probably bad, I guess. But initially, they should expect somewhat of a vague, the doctor won't know exactly the path that their loved one will go through in recovery. And so they should be as hard as it can be in that moment, Be if they can be patient, to, to give some time to get a better idea of what to expect. Absolutely. And I think the, the hardest part for the, the families that I uh, work with is... The uncertainty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, it's there's really hard to see your loved one in the hospital. Sure. Number one, it's a completely different environment that you're used to. There's a lot going on, but what's most difficult for them is the uncertainty about how mm-hmm. the family will recover. Right. And sometimes the doctor can tell you earlier on that okay, things will be good. You know, if it's a small injury, then you can say things will will, will hopefully and they'll improve. Sometimes if it's really catastrophic, then mm-hmm. earlier on you can tell someone that, look, things are very bad and and they're probably not going to recover. Mm-hmm. Okay, And even those things, it's very difficult to say sometimes in the first day or two. Yeah. Okay, But then there's a huge zone in the middle where it's difficult to see how someone recovers right. because everyone's recovery is different from person to person, mm-hmm. right? And the degree of recovery can be variable. Right. And sometimes it takes, you can recover from strokes even up to a year wow. to continue to see mm-hmm. gains. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As you said, I can imagine it's so difficult for family members because you're wondering, will they survive? Of course, those big questions, but even more like, what will he or she be like? You know, will I be able to talk to them again? Will they be able to work again? Will they be able to do this or that? How limited will they be? And as you said, uh, they might have to deal with a larger degree of uncertainty, especially in those early days. Um, so if you're listening and if you unfortunately have to go through this, be ready for that, that it might not be clear and the doctor isn't withholding information or, uh, not trying to, you know, they're not keeping something from you because it's really bad news. They really might not know because these things, as you said, you can be at one point, but go on very different paths going forward. And it's not very clear in those initial days. Um, but now I want to, you know, turn, I know there's much more you can talk about when it comes to prognosis and recovery and all of that, but when it comes to those decisions that families have to start to make, those really uncomfortable, uh, painful decisions of do we, you know, take them off the machines 
or not or whatever else it might be. And I know that's something when I talked to you earlier, you're saying it's something you deal with regularly, having these conversations with the families and uh, you have so much experience with that. So you've, I'm sure, seen what families do that helps, doesn't help, and what conversations they could and should have to help prepare for those moments. So wherever you want to begin with that, you know, when it comes to those conversations you have with families and things you want the listeners to, to know about, uh, just go ahead, wherever you'd like to begin with that. Sure. I, th- I think the first part is uh, for the families to get an understanding of where the recovery is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the prognosis, there's three parts to uh, the whole prognosis picture. And prognosis means how are they going to recover? Mm-hmm. There's number one, the physician and his team, they need to come up with a prognosis based on the various factors that they know to be able to communicate to the families what the recovery is going to be. Mm-hmm. For example, the prognosis can be poor. Right. Okay. The prognosis can be good and it can be anywhere in the middle as well. Okay. So there's formulating the prognosis by the medical team. Then there is communicating the prognosis. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the the team needs to be able to sit with the family and talk to them and tell them what they think this prognosis is. Okay. Mm-hmm. And be able to effectively communicate that. Then there's the idea of receiving the prognosis. The family has to be able to Uh, not only hear that, but understand what the physicians are saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes there's some disconnect between what the physician may say and what the family wants to hear, Mm -hmm. okay? And, for example, there's there's a lot of research about communicating prognosis, and uh, some of the research has shown, for example, there are cases where they did a survey of hundreds of families of people that they had in the ICU and they've asked them, if the physician tells you there's absolutely no chance that your family member will survive, they asked them to fill out a survey and the average, they said, the people that answered the survey said about 30% of them thought that their family member will live. Mm-hmm. So again, there's a sometimes a disconnect between what is told to the family and what they want to hear. What they want to hear and also, I mean, what they maybe can hear, like it's too hard for them to accept that truth, so they don't want to accept it. You know, I'm coming obviously from a psychologist perspective, just going into denial and not wanting to accept it. So they say zero percent, but you say no, that can't be true. There, there has to be something, or I believe in a miracle can happen, or whatever it might be. But yeah, so it's interesting that, like you said, even if things can be communicated very clearly and directly, but the family either they won't want to hear it or they feel like they can't hear it but they'll hear something else. So then the decisions they make might not be based exactly on what the doctor actually told them, but kind of their own beliefs or what they do with the information that was given to them. No, absolutely. It can be their own beliefs. Mm-hmm. For example, they can say, and, and these are things that have been published in research, that my family member has uh, certain powers that you aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. Okay, they've, they've been sick before and they've gotten better and you don't know how strong they are. Or it can be sometimes they fall back on religion, Mm -hmm. that we really believe in God and God is going to make everything better. So it's there there are different factors that go into the families receiving and processing mm-hmm. this information. Right. Uh, and I know you, we talked before and you mentioned how you sometimes, um, to help the family members deal with this, you say, imagine the person who's sick, whoever, let's say, suffered the stroke, was in the room with us and ask them, what do you think he or she would like for us to do based on the situation? 
Right. So so then the next step, once the information is provided to the family, mm-hmm. uh, there are certain decisions that need to be made. Right. And in certain cases, if the injury is catastrophic and uh, there's no chance of meaningful recovery, mm-hmm. and meaningful is person to person. Everyone defines meaningful recovery as something different. Your quality of life, what's acceptable to you, may be different that's acceptable to me. Right. So the first step in making the decisions based on what the providers tell you is knowing what your family member wants, mm-hmm. knowing what is an acceptable quality of life to them, and knowing what's not an acceptable quality mm-hmm. of life to them. And that's why, like you were talking about before, having these conversations beforehand, unfortunately, once the patient is comatose or you know in this state, you maybe can't talk to them anymore. Uh, it's important for families to have these conversations before. And I know most families and even most, for example, Persian families, they feel like if they talk about something, so if they talk about someone dying, it's like more likely to make it come about or it makes it more real or even maybe it's disrespectful to say, I'm thinking about if you get to this place, you know, so they think I shouldn't even bring it up to them. But that we need to have these conversations because, again, they I'm sure you see it so often that they get to that place, but they haven't had these conversations and now they're left with a lot of unanswered questions of what's the right thing to do. But if they had some of these uncomfortable, difficult conversations, they'd be much more uh, well-informed and it would take off so much of the stress of making these decisions because they would feel like they know what the family member indeed would want. Absolutely. And even within one family unit, mm-hmm. uh, for example, a mother may have a specific quality of life that's acceptable to them, and a father may have a different quality of life that's acceptable to them mm-hmm. when they're severely ill. Mm-hmm. Some may want to live in a nursing home and live in a decreased state. Some may not. Mm-hmm. And it's important to have these uh, communications clearly with your family. Right. Because the most important thing that one can do for their family member, uh, especially when they're ill, is to respect their wishes. Of course. And it's very easy for family to make decisions uh, for selfish reasons. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's not necessarily what uh, the individual wants for themselves to see their their loved one alive. Mm -hmm. It's really the most important thing is to say, what would that person want? If they're sitting in the room here with us in this family meeting in the hospital, and they hear the doctor say, this is the state that they're going to live in for the rest of their life, what would they want us to do in that case? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important aspect of uh, this difficult decision yep. is uh, knowing what they want. And mm-hmm. the only way to know is to have these frank conversations early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think for a lot of people, I can imagine there's that almost that guilt that if I kind of give that order or the okay to, you know, quote unquote, pull the plug, it's like I'm killing my loved one, you know, which obviously is not at all the case. But I think that's, I could imagine what makes it hard for somebody is them to say, okay, go ahead and do that because they feel almost responsible for the death. Even though, like you said, it's not that obviously we want this person to die. It's that because of the quality of life they're going to have in that case, it almost can be better to not be alive than to be alive like that. They might not want to have stayed alive in that state. And that's what you're really choosing, not to obviously kill them. Um, but I can just imagine family members having a hard time saying, yes, go ahead and end their life. Right. Uh, so, and In medicine, there's there are a lot of things that we can do these days. Mm-hmm. And we can keep people alive for a long time. But that may not always be the right answer. Right. We don't have to do or undergo these interventions that prolong people on a machine. 
on a life support if that's not what the individual would have wanted. Mm -hmm. And it's not the family making the decision. The decision should really be coming from the patient. If the patient were awake, we would ask them what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And we would just tell them, hey, what do you want us to do? And, And really respect the wishes. And we really want to do the same when they're in a comatose state or if they're in a state where they can't answer, we have to fall back on the surrogate decision makers. Mm-hmm. And then related to that, the decision makers, what people can do is also, is it called power of attorney or the person who, who can make that medical decision? How can we legally establish that? Right. So just like signing paperwork yeah. to have someone else take care of your financial affairs, you can also sign paperwork to have someone make your medical decisions for you. In case you can't make them yourself. In case you can't. And that's the setting in which you have that conversation mm-hmm. with the medical decision maker. Mm-hmm. It's usually someone that you know, that you know will act in your best interest. And you have the frank conversations with them and, and to some degree try to give them an idea of what quality of life would be acceptable and what quality of life would not be acceptable. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, yeah, those, again, those are the difficult conversations that I hope families will have. Uh, like I said, I know most Iranian families shy away from a lot of these types of issues and they don't want to even think about them so they won't even talk about them but you'd much rather talk about them and hopefully after never use it then to have not talked about it and end up in a situation where you don't know what to do and it's literally a life or death decision and you're you're feeling lost and very anxious to make that decision um we are unfortunately at the end of the show went by so fast and i think this part of it was so interesting uh and i think there's so much more to it maybe you can come on another time and we can talk some more about bunch of different issues, but more about this, because I think it's not just about strokes, but in any kind of medical condition can lead to this point where families have to make these kinds of decisions and it's important for them to have those conversations. So I hope you'll join me another time. I would love to. Thank All you. All right. So again, that was my guest and friend, neurologist, Dr. Jonathan Morabian. Thank you for joining me on the show tonight. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.